0: On June 26, 1858, Colonel Albert Sidney Johnston ordered his troops forward, marching them toward Salt Lake City. They found the city abandoned, other than a few soldiers of the Nauvoo Legion, who doggedly stayed behind the city, ready to set it ablaze if Johnston's soldiers began rampaging. How did Johnston's army feel about this ambiguous end to a year-long campaign? And how did the Latter-day Saints deal with uncertainty amid army patrols and evacuation orders? And how effective were these military measures when the spirited young men and women of Pioneer Utah wanted to be together? On this episode, we explore these questions and more. I'm Nate Olson, and this is Adventures in Mormon History. By June of 1858. A general sense came over the troops and officers of Johnston's army that their campaign had been undermined by Washington politicians. Thomas Kane had successfully spirited away the incoming governor, Alfred Cumming, taking him to Salt Lake City without the army escort, and leaving them seemingly without much of a purpose. Their departure had been closely followed by the arrival of peace commissioners from the White House, with presidential pardons for Brigham Young and other church leaders. But worst of all, Johnston and his staff received news that reinforcements were on the way, led by General William Selby Harney, who was himself to take command of the expedition and lead it into the Salt Lake Valley. For Johnston, this was too much. He decided that if he and his men were good enough to endure the privations of winter on the Wyoming Plains, then they were certainly good enough to finish the campaign by marching into Salt Lake City. And so, Johnston announced to his troops on June 11, 1858, that in two days time, they would set out for Salt Lake City without waiting for General Harney's reinforcements. At this news, the soldiers erupted into what historian Bill McKinnon describes as a whiskey-fueled bacchanalia that ended up filling both the hospitals and the guardhouses. Captain John Phelps, commander of the 4th U.S. Artillery's Light Battery B, described the chaos in his company this way. Some volunteers have been drunk and noisy. A lieutenant and a corporal of B Company fired pistols at each other tonight, and the lieutenant was hit in the side. Not even the federal judges were exempt. Several drunken soldiers got into a row against Judge Eccles at his quarters today. The judge had some women at his establishment, who were probably at the bottom of this affair. Meanwhile, the Latter-day Saint-Nauvoo Legion was busy, the saints buried the stone foundations of the Salt Lake Temple, disguising it as a wheat field to prevent its destruction. Next, as part of the Latter-day Saints' scorched earth strategy, which was inspired by the Russian resistance of Napoleon's army, the Nauvoo Legion prepared to both evacuate the population and set Salt Lake City to the torch. The legion set up armed patrols and posted sentries to enforce the evacuation order. But as one old soldier observation goes, war is made up of long periods of boredom, punctuated by moments of sheer terror. And for some of the restless young men and spirited women of the Utah Territory, these long stretches of boredom were simply too much. Pioneer Utah was, of course, remarkable for the practice of polygamy, and such unions had little to do with the idea of romantic love. But even so, The large majority of Latter-day Saint pioneers were monogamous, and their matches were not unlike others of the Victorian age. And so, despite the obstacles of patrols, guards, and evacuation orders, they would still find opportunities for romance. Private John MacDonald, a soldier in the Nauvoo Legion, recalls how he first met his future wife, Amelia Cropland, while he was on duty in the Utah War. He recorded how when he first saw her in the home of a Mrs. Hardy, I opened the door and she was sitting with her back to me. I had not seen her face, but I had a very strange feeling that that girl would be my wife. We soon became acquainted. Two or three days before her parents evacuated Salt Lake City, she and Private McDonald became engaged. He wrote, I later found them at Pleasant Grove, about 40 miles south of Salt Lake City. We did not like the idea of being separated, so I got two or three days furlough and went south to see her. On my way, I passed Colonel J.C. Little with a drove of sheep. I knew he would get to Pleasant Grove the next day, so I told my mother-in-law that I was going to meet the colonel and get him to marry Amelia and me. So we both jumped on the same old white horse and rode toward the city until we met Colonel Little. We met him somewhere opposite Lehigh on the main road. We rode up to the Colonel and told him that we wanted him to marry us. He asked us to get down off the horse, but we told him, No, sir, we do our sparkin' on the old horse. We were engaged on him, and now we want to be married on him. So the Colonel asked us to join hands and perform the ceremony and married us. We had a very pleasant wedding. There were quite a number present, uh, about 300 head of dirty sheep. The sheep seemed to enjoy the wedding very much as it gave them time to rest a little and eat grass. As soon as we were made man and wife, we thanked the bishop and started back to Pleasant Grove on the Dead Run, a distance of about seven miles. But a young man on military duty could not always get two or three days furlough, as Private McDonald had. And so, with the evacuation orders in effect throughout Salt Lake City, young men and women had to get creative to find ways to be together. In a letter of 15 June, 1858, Private Henry Clark Jackson, on guard duty in Salt Lake City, wrote to his wife about how some of the more spirited ladies of Utah would risk apprehension or being mistaken for saboteurs by stealing past the guards and patrols at night for surreptitious rendezvous with their soldiers. We have to keep guard to keep the sisters from coming back. For some is all fired simple that they will come to town to see their dear husbands, spend a night or two, and then return. Mrs. Rowley came last Friday and had to return on Sunday before sunrise, for the guards were after strangers. Others went to even greater lengths to be together. After their roadside wedding, Private McDonald and Amelia were unwilling to be apart despite the evacuation order and his military duty. He wrote, My wife did not like to be alone, so I used to dress her in my Spanish suit of pants and jacket and take her with me on our old white horse. I passed her off as my cousin from the South. She made a splendid boy. The only thing I was afraid of is that she was too good-looking for a boy. But I fixed her up good, and I don't think anyone ever suspected her of being a girl. On June 26, 1858, Johnston led his tightly-packed troops through the large, empty streets of Salt Lake City. Johnston himself did not have much to say about this culmination of his year-long campaign. I found the city abandoned, except for a few persons engaged in guarding the property and keeping gardens in good order. Lieutenant Samuel Ferguson of the Second Dragoons left a more memorable account. After the harsh winter at Fort Bridger, he recalled, Our hair and beards were so matted that one could not recognize his best friend at a distance of a few yards. About 18 miles outside the valley, the Dragoons formed line to march in parade formation through the city. Their discipline, though, was put to an unexpected test by the sudden, taunting appearance of the Nauvoo Legion Cavalry, led by the Irishman Brigadier General James Ferguson. Here's how the Dragoon described what happened. While we were preparing, a squadron of Mormon cavalry, splendidly mounted, with silver saddle and bridle trimmings, under the command of a namesake of mine, that is, uh, James Ferguson. They galloped up and around our little band of dirty old soldiers, mounted on a few horses we had that had survived the march. Deep were the muttered curses I could hear, and how welcome would have been the order to fire the Dragoons seemed to realize that their mounts, in their feebled, emaciated state, were no match for the Nauvoo Legion. The Dragoon admitted, "...to charge would have been a farce, for they could gallop away from our scarecrows. After all our hardship and sufferings, we were not to fight. We marched through Salt Lake City in the most perfect order, as on dress parade, every man and officer in his place." Now Johnston's troops would continue their march through Salt Lake City and then head west to build a more permanent base at Camp Floyd on the western shore of Utah Lake. For the men of Johnston's army, Utah had always held one especially compelling prospect, the Society of Ladies. In his later visit to Pioneer Utah, Mark Twain would famously and discourteously describe the Latter-day Saint women as, poor ungainly, and pathetically homely creatures. But Captain John Phelps of the 4th U.S. Artillery would reach the opposite conclusion upon entering Utah. In his opinion, the Latter-day Saint women were far too beautiful for their husbands, and he marveled that a church that somehow enabled men to marry women otherwise well out of their league was not more popular. Correspondent James Simonton, traveling with the Army, complained in the New York Times how the Latter-day Saint women kept such a distance from the army, a phenomenon he blamed on the men. The Brethren have the greatest possible horror of bringing their women in contact with the army, which to Tid could only mean, either the women of this valley are shockingly wicked and untrustworthy, or else very unhappy and discontented. Oddly, it never seems to have occurred to Simonton that the spirited ladies of Utah were quite capable of overcoming the most daunting obstacles to be with men they wanted to be with. Nor does Simonton admit that the sisters may have had good reason to keep their distance from Johnston's soldiers, the same soldiers who only days before had erupted into a whiskey fueled riot of gunplay and debauchery. In his bafflement as to why the women of Deseret were not more eager to associate with him or his soldiers, Simonton may simply have needed someone to take him aside to explain, it's not them, it's you. Disappointment prevailed for other reasons as well. Many of the soldiers and officers in Johnston's army felt let down by this end to their campaign. Captain Phelps dryly noted, After a year's pursuit of the Mormons as the enemy, to arrive in their capital and find it abandoned, with no evidence of opposition or resistance anywhere, leaves the expedition almost without an object, and wholly without interest. But other soldiers were awestruck by their view of the city, rising as it did out of the mountain waste. Lieutenant John Van Dusen Dubois wrote in a letter home that Salt Lake City was... The most beautiful place i ever saw that the utah war ended this way a disciplined march through an abandoned city and not with harrowing scenes of blood carnage and fire was due to the efforts of many people but most of all credit belongs to colonel thomas kane of pennsylvania who at great personal expense and at great risk to himself raced in the dead of winter to the frozen wastes of Wyoming to throw himself between the two armies and avert the horrors of war. As Wilford Woodruff wrote the following year, Thomas Kane had by himself accomplished what the wisdom of the whole nation could not and paid his friend this tribute. The name of Thomas L. Kane stands most prominent, an instrument in the hands of God to turn away the edge of the sword and to save the effusion of much blood. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Adventures in Mormon History. I'm your host, Nate Olson.